We're in Galatians again this week, picking up where we left off last week. We'll, be, we'll begin in chapter 1, verse 11. And last week we talked about the power of the one true gospel. We saw that there is one gospel and that Paul is writing to people who are veering away from that one gospel. I told Lindsay as I was preparing for Galatians that you could summarize the book of Galatians in a very concise way. That Paul is saying to these Christians, there is one gospel, and for the love of everything that is holy, please stop turning away from it to other gospels. And that's what we saw last week. And we saw the importance of this because only the one true gospel has the power to save. It's only the one true gospel that can bring people into fellowship, into relationship with God, which is what our hearts were created for and longed for. This week, we see that Paul is defending the legitimacy of the gospel that he preaches and of his ministry as an apostle. The reason that people are veering away from the gospel in Galatia is that some other people have come in and taught them a false gospel, a gospel of works, and part of that is them calling Paul into question, uh, calling his calling and his ministry and what he preaches into question, calling his character into question. So that's, that's the guy who was just persecuting the church a few years ago, and you're going to listen to his gospel? And so Paul is defending himself, and as he does, we will see three things. First, Paul receives the gospel. Second, Paul defends the gospel. And third, Paul preaches the gospel. Galatians 1, verse 11, I'll read through chapter 2, verse 10. For I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel preached by me is not of human origin. For I didn't receive it from a human source, and I wasn't taught it, but it came by a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard about my former way of life in Judaism. I intensely persecuted God's church and tried to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many contemporaries among my people because I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. But when God, who from my mother's womb set me apart and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I could preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. I did not go up to Jerusalem to those who had become apostles before me. Instead, I went to Arabia and came back to Damascus. Then after three years, I did go up to Jerusalem to get to know Cephas, and I stayed with him 15 days. But I didn't see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. I declare in the sight of God, I am not lying in what I write to you. Afterward, I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I remained personally unknown to the Judean churches that are in Christ, but they simply kept hearing he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. And after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. I went up according to a revelation and presented to them the gospel I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those recognized as leaders. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running in vain, but not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus in order to enslave us. But we did not give up and submit to these people for even a moment so that the truth of the gospel would be preserved for you. Now, from those recognized as important, what they once were makes no difference to me. God doesn't show favoritism. They added nothing to me. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel for the uncircumcised, just as Peter was for the circumcised, since the one at work in Peter for an apostleship to the circumcised was also at work in me for the Gentiles. When James, Cephas, and John, 
those recognized as pillars, acknowledged the grace that had been given to me. They, had, they gave the right hand of fellowship to me and Barnabas, agreeing that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They asked only that we would remember the poor, which I had made every effort to do. This is the word of the Lord. Paul, as he's defending himself and his gospel, recounts how he received the gospel. And he says from the beginning that this gospel came from God's revelation. That's the overarching main point of this entire section that I just read. And he proves it in two points. He says, first, once I received the gospel, I didn't immediately go and consult with anybody. I didn't go to the church authorities. I didn't go to the apostles to make sure that I got the right gospel. I received it directly from God. And then he says, I went to Arabia. You can read about uh, Paul's reception of the gospel in Acts chapter 9. He's going from persecuting Christians in one place to go and persecute Christians in another place. And he's knocked off of his donkey by a blinding light and a voice that says to him, Saul, Saul, that's his Jewish name. Paul is his Greek name. Why are you persecuting me? Paul says, Lord, who are you? And he says, I'm Jesus Christ, the one that you are persecuting. And Paul's blinded by this event, and God tells him, go see this person, and he'll take the scales off your eyes so you can see again, and then he does. And then, evidently, Paul goes to Arabia for three years. Now, we don't get the details of that in Acts, and Paul doesn't give us the details here. Uh, People have wondered, what was he doing in Arabia? Some people say he was going to preach the gospel right away. Other people uh, say that he went to Arabia not to preach, but to learn. That, that he almost had this, this personal time as like some sort of monk with Jesus directly revealing to him over the course of three years, uh, this is everything that you need to know to go and fulfill your ministry. Um, the, some people have, have even speculated that this three-year period was meant to sort of make up for the three years that the other apostles had with Jesus on earth during his ministry. Now, that's speculative. But it's certainly interesting to me, and it does, you know, you you read the New Testament and you wonder, like, how did Paul know everything that he knew without having spent time with Jesus on earth? And so it at least makes some sense. But regardless of what he was doing there, he was in Arabia for three years. Then he says, I had a brief meeting with Peter, that's Cephas Peter, same person, uh, two different versions of his name. But he says, "I, I didn't go to him for approval. I went just to make his acquaintance, to get to know him. And then I just went along with my ministry, and 14 years after my conversion, I finally did confer with the apostles. And this is the second proof that he gives. He says, first, I didn't immediately consult with anyone, but second, when I finally did, 14 years later, they endorsed the gospel that I was preaching. And they said, yeah, you're you're preaching the same gospel that we're preaching. Now, Paul's reception of his gospel cuts against two arguments about sort of spiritual authority One is the the kind of traditional argument that says the church is the ultimate authority in spiritual matters. The church is the ultimate authority in spiritual matters. Uh, But Paul doesn't go to the church. He doesn't go to the church leaders. He doesn't go to the apostles and say, is my gospel right? He received it by direct and divine revelation. He he says later in the passage, "I, I wanted to go after 14 years and make sure I wasn't running in vain, but we shouldn't we shouldn't hear that as him saying, I wanted to check after 14 years and make sure that I did indeed have the right gospel. Because he said, we saw last week, if anybody preaches to you a different gospel, even me or an angel, let them be cursed. So presumably Peter, James, and John would be included in that anyone. What he's doing is not making sure that 
he was preaching the right gospel, but rather making sure that they were all working together in the same direction and that they weren't pursuing two totally different things. But the, the point is that he doesn't go to them to, to have them check out his gospel, right? They aren't his authority. This, this idea that the church is the ultimate authority is the formal argument, for example, of the Roman Catholic Church that puts the church and the Bible on par together as authorities. But it becomes the functional position of lots of other denominations, doesn't it? Uh, it sometimes if you, if you, you know, peek under the hood in some churches, you can ask, you know, why do we do X, Y, or Z? Why don't we do X, Y, or Z? And they'll say, well, because that's what the Bible teaches. And then you press them a little bit and you're like, actually, the Bible doesn't say anything about that. And, and the real answer is because, well, that's what we've always done, right? That's just how we do things around here. We're, we're a Baptist church, uh, part of a, a Baptist denomination, uh, and Baptists can be like that just as much as Catholics or anybody else can, right? There can be things that we do just because we do them, just because that's what we've always done. And we, we want to cut against that. We want to push against that and say, no, God's word, God's revelation is our ultimate authority. So you'll see us do some things that aren't typical in Baptist churches. For example, uh, most Baptist churches have one lead pastor and then a board of deacons who kind of govern the church. That's not what we believe the Bible teaches, and so that's not what we do. We have a plurality of pastors or elders or overseers who govern the church and deacons who serve the church. Uh, we take communion every week. That's very rare in Baptist churches. Why? Because we think that the theology of communion that we get from Scripture leads us to want to do it very regularly and probably every week. So like Paul, we want to be held captive not to church tradition or authority, but to divine revelation, to the word. But he, he cuts against another argument, a much more common contemporary argument. My guess would be that most of you don't operate as though the church is the ultimate authority in spiritual things. You'd be much more inclined to operate with another assumption, namely that the self is the highest authority in spiritual things. That you need to look not to some external body of authority or tradition, but into your own heart. Uh, in our day, if it feels right, we say it, it must be right. Charles Taylor, in his book, Sources of the Self, this, this big, long book basically about how modern people conceive of themselves, and he talks about what he calls the expressivist turn that happened a couple hundred years ago during the Romantic period. You hear the Romantic period that, does, that wasn't a time when people were really mushy and gooey and showed a lot of public displays of affection, but an actual uh, historically definable period that was characterized by a number of things, but one of them, he says, is this, this turn inward. He said, before, before the Romantic period, people viewed the world in, in a sort of way where there was this like natural order. And to figure out how you fit into the natural order, you needed to look beyond yourself. You needed to look to God, or you needed to look to nature, or you needed to look to your community or your tradition. But he says, the Romantics came along and they, they didn't deny that there was a natural order. In fact, they said it ran through the heart of every person. But the best way to figure out, to, to, to get in touch with the natural order was to look inward and find where that, that spark of the divine or the spark of nature runs through your own heart. You see, in, instead of looking outward to figure out how the world works, now we need to look inward to see how the world works. And of course, that's how modern people figure it out, right? You go to church or you read a book or whatever, and if it, if, it, if it fits with what you're feeling inside, you say it must be good. If you don't feel good about it, you say it must be, must be bad. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul isn't saying church doesn't have authority, you have authority. He's saying the church tradition, the church leaders do not have ultimate authority. I didn't go to the apostles. 
but neither does the self. Paul's experience of receiving the gospel is that something came from outside of him, not from another human, but from direct revelation from God. You say, well, that's unfortunate because we don't have that anymore. Yes, we do. We have God's word. The Bible is the divinely inspired collection of writings that are all written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that have Christ and his gospel as their their main theme and have salvation for their goal. The Bible is without any mixture of error in all that it affirms. It's the word of God for the people of God, and thus it's the highest authority for us. So when we, when we look to you know, the, answer the questions of what is the gospel, what is right teaching, what is right doctrine, we don't go to church authority, we don't go to ourselves either. We go, first and foremost, to the scriptures. And when we receive the gospel, when we receive this message from the Bible, from divine revelation, we should note that, like Paul, it changes us. It, it does something to our lives. Look at verses 21 through 24. Paul says, I didn't know the Judean Christians yet, but they kept hearing the guy who used to persecute us now preaches the very faith that he tried to destroy. The reputation of his change preceded him. Uh, A little bit of my story. I grew up in a church and was baptized at a young age. And looking back, I still don't. If you were to ask me, when did you become a Christian? I'm not totally sure. So if that's your story, uh, know that your pastor has the same story. But when I was 17 years old, either I became a Christian or I had some sort of spiritual reawakening where it really became real to me for the first time. And I was a, I was a golfer. I played golf in high school and in college. And um, I don't know if you know this, but golf courses are not necessarily the most morally scrupulous places. And as a, as a 16, 17-year-old junior in high school, I had a reputation for uh, among my peers and also among some adults for uh, underage drinking and just chasing girls and, and doing all those sorts of things. And I, I remember very distinctly the feeling as a 17-year-old who's had this spiritual awakening of coming back the summer before my senior year and seeing all these guys who knew me as a certain person and feeling like... I'm going to have to tell them why I'm so different than I was the last time I was hanging out with them. I'm going to have to give them an answer for the the change that's happened in me. And it doesn't mean I was perfect, but there was a noticeable difference. Is your life different because of the gospel? How has your life been changed? Now, in my story, it was some of the typical things, right? Not everybody has that experience, but in every area of your life, you ought to be actively being changed by the gospel. You ought to be growing. You ought to be coming out of your habits of sin and coming into habits of holiness. That's not to say, uh, as C.S. Lewis makes this point in Mere Christianity, it's not to say that we should compare Christians to non-Christians and that every Christian should be a better person than every non-Christian. He says, that's the wrong starting point. It doesn't take into account people's personality and disposition. He says, what you should do is you should look at them before they were a Christian and look at them after they became a Christian and see, are they becoming more patient? becoming more gracious, more gentle, more humble, more loving. After Paul receives the gospel, he is made to defend the gospel. Just as a review, what we said last week, the gospel is God saves you, you don't save you. He is the actor, you are the one acted upon. He is the subject and you are the object. He justifies you freely by his grace through faith in Jesus and you cannot justify yourself, you can't even contribute a little bit to it. But Paul has to defend this. Why? Verse four, he says, this matter arose because some false brothers 
had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus in order to enslave us. What's the freedom he's talking about? It's freedom from the law, from the Old Testament law. And in particular, he talks a lot about circumcision. Now, this is just one of those areas where we have to be honest that preaching the Bible, talking about Christianity can be weird and awkward. And if you're like, if your first time in church, you're like, why are they talking about circumcision? Uh, the reason is because circumcision was the sacrament or the covenant sign that was given to God's people in the Old Testament, the Jewish people. It was the physical marker that you belonged to the people of God, to the covenant community. Now, as with the Christian sacraments of communion and baptism, uh, circumcision was, uh, was symbolic. It's an external sign of an internal reality, the, the cutting away of a hard heart and of sin and of, of what the Bible calls the flesh. Uh, and in fact, the Old Testament often talks about circumcision of the heart. And, and God says, I care way more about circumcision of the heart than I do about this physical sign. And as that, we have a friend in here. He was with me this morning. If he tries to swoop down and hit me in the head. Then, um, as, the, as the key physical marker of covenant belonging Paul is using circumcision here as a stand-in for obedience to the entire Old Testament law. But Paul makes even more clear in the book of Romans that the sign of circumcision came after God's promise. Obedience came after salvation. Abraham, Paul says in, in Romans, the father of the Jewish people, was not accepted by God on the basis, basis of his obedience, on the basis of his circumcision, but rather he got circumcised as a response to God's grace and acceptance. And Paul goes on to say, if this is true of circumcision, the covenant marker, how much more so the rest of the law, which only came in hundreds of years later. So Paul's saying here two things. He's saying, number one, obedience to the law is not essential for salvation because it never was. Salvation always, became, always came before obedience. But beyond that, he's saying, number two, now that Christ has come and fulfilled the law and the gospel has gone to all nations, we no longer have to take on those covenant markers and obedience to the law at all. That, that era in salvation history has been completed. And he says, you know, if you're Jewish and you want to keep doing that, that's just fine. As an as a ethnic marker, as a cultural marker. But he says you cannot make that a condition of acceptance by God and God's people, especially for non-Jews like Titus, who he mentions specifically here. That freedom... From the law, Paul says, was spied on. Why? It offended and scandalized religious people. Have you ever known one of those people who just seems like they just can't stand the idea that other people are having too much fun? Uh, when I was a senior in high school, I went to a pretty conservative uh, evangelical Christian school, and um, I was the, this may or may not surprise you depending on how you know me, but I was like the loud, boisterous guy in the student section at basketball and football games, kind of leading all the nonsense. And before our home, first home football game, senior year, we decided we're going to paint up like students do. We're going to get blue and white paint and write stuff on our chests and go out there and be, you know, rowdy and whatever. But on Friday, the day of the football game, our school administrators found out about this and they just thought people will be scandalized if they see the bare chests of these high school boys uh, and, and see people, you know, so scantily clad at football games, which, of course, you could see at any football stadium on any Friday night. But they told us, if you do that, you're going to get a detention. 
And so immediately when the bell rang, we went and bought our paint and we painted up and we went to the game. And what I loved was the athletic director didn't know about this conversation. And he was at the gate welcoming us with a huge smile and high fives and specifically saying, I want you to do this every game. And then on Monday, we all served our mass detention together. But it felt like, I remember it felt like at the time, like, why did they just not want us to have fun? Like, this isn't bad we're not doing anything that you couldn't see at any high school football game or college football game. Like, we have the freedom to do this. Why does it bother you so much that we're having a good time? That's kind of like the Judaizers in Galatians. Of course, about a matter that's much more serious. They're looking at the, the freedom of these Christians and saying, you're too free. It's too easy. You should have to work to belong here. You should have to do your job, do your duty to belong here. And in the meantime, until you get on our level, you're sub-Christians, you're second-class citizens of God's kingdom, and we're going to treat you as such. The freedom of the gospel always offends legalists. And I should say, it offends legalists of the fundamentalist variety and the progressive variety. And if you want more thoughts on that, you can listen to last week's sermon. We see beautiful pictures of this in the ministry of Jesus. In, in Luke chapter 7, Jesus is having a meal with some Pharisees, some really religious people. And he's sitting there, and this woman walks in, and she's well known throughout the town as a prostitute. And she sits down at his feet, and she starts weeping at his feet and washing his feet with her tears and her hair, which I think would make all of us uncomfortable. It's so, such an intimate display of love and affection. And the Pharisees start thinking to themselves, if he knew what kind of woman this was, he would tell her to get out of here. And Jesus does that party trick when he responds to their thoughts, which I love when he does that. And he says, hey, if, if two people are forgiven a debt and one's forgiven a much greater debt and the other a much smaller debt, who's going to love more? Who's going to be more grateful? It's the same thing in the, the story of the prodigal son, the older brother and the younger brother, right? You know the story. The, the younger brother goes to his dad and says, I want my share of the inheritance now. In other words, you're better off to me dead. And the father gives it to him and he goes and spends it all on wild and reckless living. And he comes back and the father welcomes him back in with open arms and the older brother is livid. And the dad throws this big party for him and the, the older son's outside working and his dad comes out and pleads with him, implores them, please come inside and celebrate that your brother's home. The older brother says, I've been slaving away from, for you here all these years, and you never threw a party like this for me. Older brothers, Pharisees, legalistic people are always offended by the radical grace and freedom of the gospel. Why? Because they think that they've earned their standing before God, and you have to, too. In other words, because they're prideful, because they trust in their own works, which, as we saw last week, is the heart of every false gospel. But freedom as it was pointed out to me by one of our attendees this week, talking about this passage, freedom can also be spied on in a different way. Freedom can be spied on by those who are offended by it, but it can also be spied on by those who are attracted to it, by those who see it and find it magnetic and compelling. There's another person in both of the stories that I just told, right? Yes, you have the Pharisees, but you also have the prostitute who's weeping at the feet of Jesus, because she loves him, because her life has been changed by him. You have the older brother, but you also have the younger brother. The gospel always offends legalists, but it attracts the humble and the hurting like a magnet. The gospel 
brings freedom. It brings liberation from guilt, from shame, from anxiety, from fear. And that freedom costs us absolutely nothing. It costs Jesus everything. Now we should say, does that mean that you never experience those things again in this life? No, of course you have experiences with those things, but you're not controlled by them anymore. They don't have power over you anymore. You're not enslaved to them. And you don't have to actually do anything for that to be true because Jesus did it for you. Now, does that sound too easy to you? Does it, does it feel like, you know what, some people are guilty and I don't want them to be let off the hook for their guilt. They need to pay some penance before they can belong here. Does it, does it feel like, like do, do you think about shame and think, you know, I'm not ready to let people out of their shame. That's like a handy tool that I need in my back pocket when I have a fight with my spouse or sibling or parent or somebody. Freedom from anxiety, from fear. Do you, do you hear that and you think like, no, that, we can't have freedom from that in this life. Like that can only be overcome with the right tools and, and, and hard work. Does it, does it just sound too easy? Or does it sound inviting? Does it sound compelling? Does it sound like you, you want that? Pay attention to how the freedom of the gospel lands on you. If it seems unfair, you know, Jesus, there's another parable that Jesus tells of some, a guy who hires some workers. And uh, some of them start in the first hour, some start in the second hour, but he needs more. So he goes out and gets more and more and more. And to, to the last hour, he's adding more workers. And at the end of the day, he lines them all up and he pays the ones who came last first. And he pays them all the same exact wages. And the guys who get paid last, who were working all day, are scandalized. They're so offended. And they say, but we worked all day. And the guy who hired them basically says, it's my money. Can't I do what I want with it? It's God's grace. Can't he do what he wants with it? If the freedom of the gospel lands on you as unfair, it's possible that, as we said last week, the gospel still hasn't gotten a hold of you, or at least there's some latent legalism that needs to be pushed out. But if it sounds inviting, enticing, almost too good to be true, even if you're here and you're not a Christian and you feel that way, then you're starting to get it. The gospel repels the proud, but it attracts the humble. It scandalizes those who think they can still get their act together on, the, on their own, but it lifts the drooping heads of those who have been disabused of that notion. Another way to describe this, the difference in, in the religious people who think they can do it on their own and people who've been changed by the gospel is the difference in duty and delight. Religious people are really good at duty. They're really good at doing their job, at doing all the tasks, at, at checking off everything on the list, but there's no delight in it. They don't delight in God. Jonathan Edwards was a preacher and a theologian in 1700s in New England. Uh, and he played a, a really important role in what historians call the Great Awakening or Great Awakenings. Uh, he, he famously was a really actually boring preacher. Uh, he, if you read his sermons, they're very vivid and they're detailed and they're beautiful, but apparently he would just get up there and keep his head down the whole time and read his manuscript in a monotonous voice. And sometimes he would put the 18th century equivalent of index cards in his hands and go like this to at least feign the appearance of eye contact with his members. But God used his boring preaching to save and, and reawake many, many, many people in his time as a preacher. But he wasn't always a Christian. 
And George Marsden, in his uh, biography of, of Edwards, talks about the home that he grew up in. And he says, pious New Englanders like the Edwardses, despite their emphasis on grace, insisted on good works as much as anyone. They lived under strict discipline of law and practices of piety. Every child knew the Ten Commandments and was taught to observe them to the letter. Every day and every meal began and ended with family or personal prayers and devotions. And young Jonathan was in many ways a pious child. For a few months at age nine, he even built a secret hideout in the woods for prayer. But why? Because, Marsden writes, he wished more than anything to please his parents with the appearance of religion. He was good at religious duty. He was a good person. But his sense during that whole time of dread and anxiety and guilt and fear never went away until he was a college student at Yale. And he began to have a, a different experience. He began to, on occasion, be overwhelmed by what he called a new sense, quite different from anything I've experienced before, a sort of inward, sweet delight in God and divine things. Marsden says these experiences could come simply from meditating on scripture, or they might well up while he contemplated the loveliness and beauty of Christ, or they might happen when he was just walking alone in the fields considering the beauty of creation. We saw last week, we talked briefly about John and Charles Wesley and the role of Galatians in their life and Great Awakenings. And similar to them, before there was any change brought through the ministry of Jonathan Edwards, there was a change that happened in him, where he was converted from simply trying to, to, to perform for God by his religious duty to delighting in God. Religious people who spy on the freedom of the gospel are very good at doing their duty, and they're always proud of their own good works. But that kind of pride cannot exist with genuine Christianity. In fact, Edwards wrote a book called Religious Affections, and, and basically he was looking out as the, the, these revivals, the Great Awakenings were happening, and saw many, many people come to Christ, and, and he was asking, how much of this is real? How much of this is genuine? And so he wrote this huge book to try to answer that question. And he says one of the signs of what he calls gracious affections one of the signs that the, the grace of God is working in your life is what he calls evangelical humiliation, which a better, more contemporary version of that would just be gospel humility. He says gospel humility is a sense that a Christian has of his own utter insufficiency. You can't be prideful and have a sense of your own utter insufficiency at the same time. Religious people people who spy on the freedom of the gospel to try to enslave others don't have that. But hurting people, broken people, spiritually bankrupt people who spy on the freedom of the gospel will be drawn to it. Why? Because they know that they've, they've worked as hard as they can and they can't find that kind of freedom in their own power. Do you see then why Paul had to defend the gospel, had to fight tooth and nail to defend it? Do you see why it's worth us fighting to protect it? Because if we lose it, if it's corrupted by even an ounce of self-justification and legalism and works righteousness, what we do as a church and as people is we look at hurting and broken and burnt out and exhausted people and we say, you got yourself into this mess, you can get yourself out of it and come back when you have. And that crushes people. That's not good news, that's terrible news. The gospel looks at hurting and broken and burnt out and exhausted people and says, you got yourself into this mess. Christ died to fix it for you. Look to him, trust him. 
Paul defends the gospel, but we don't just play defense. The gospel is also meant to go on offense. It's meant to be preached. And after the other apostles, Peter, James, and John, extend the right hand of fellowship to Paul, he goes back to what he's been doing for 14 years, namely preaching. But he's not the only one who keeps preaching it. It's interesting. It says that specifically he and Barnabas went to preach the gospel to Gentiles, to non-Jewish people, to the uncircumcised. But Peter, James, and John go back to preaching to the circumcised, the Jews. And you might hear that and think, wait a second, if the gospel is the power to save for all people and it unites us with God and with one another, then why are they going about this so separately? Are they creating a Jewish church on the one hand and a Gentile church on the other hand? Is this like a a so-called separate but equal thing? No, absolutely not. What we're looking at here is, is what we call contextualization. That's a big word, but it basically just means preaching the gospel in a manner that can be understood in a specific context. Juan Sanchez, who's a pastor in Austin, Texas, says the first step of contextualization is we must identify as much as scripture allows with the people we are trying to reach. We must identify as much as scripture allows with the people we're trying to reach. This is basically what Austin Groves preached an entire sermon on several weeks back, 1 Corinthians 9. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that if you missed it. But what Paul is saying is it's not a different message. It's just preached slightly differently to different groups of people. How do we know? Verse 8, Paul says, the one who was at work in Peter was also at work in me. In other words, it's the same God working in both of us. In verse 7, he says, that he was sent to preach the gospel for the uncircumcised. The others were sent to preach the gospel for the circumcised. He doesn't say one gospel for one group, another gospel for another. He doesn't say a gospel for the Gentiles and a gospel for the Jews. He says the one gospel. So same God, same gospel, different audience. The goal is not to create a, a divided or segregated church. Paul's just commenting on the reality that different people need to hear the gospel differently. People in East Nashville need to hear the gospel presented slightly differently than people in, in Spring Hill, and probably quite a bit differently than people in Nicaragua or Nigeria. And once they have, it will create different-looking communities. One, one of the, in the early to mid-20th century, there was a great missionary movement, and it produced amazing fruit around the world, but one of the sad consequences of it is you may have seen pictures, or if you've traveled abroad and worshiped with other churches, you may have seen this in person. There are many, many churches now in the global south, in Africa and in South America, where you will go to church with them on Sunday, and you'll find them walking in in Western suits and ties and dresses that they would never wear in their own culture. Why? Because the missionaries there didn't always do a great job of dividing gospel from culture. They didn't contextualize well. And they left those folks thinking, in order for us to honor God and respect God, we need to wear these strange Western-looking clothes. And interestingly enough, uh, now that the the center of gravity of Christianity has moved to the global South, and in the decades to come, we're going to see more and more and more missionaries coming from South America and from Africa to Europe and North America, they're going to be presented with the same challenge. How do we contextualize the gospel appropriately in secular Europe and North America? There's always this tendency when we're doing ministry to pursue uniformity, to make everybody look the same, to make everybody act the same, but that's not the gospel. The beauty of the gospel and the unity of the church shines much more brilliantly when we see that unity not in form or in fashion, but in the message that we preach. 
And I would argue that that's a, a much more beautiful experience when you go to a church in a different part of the world and they sing songs that are unfamiliar to you and they have practices that are unfamiliar to you. They dance and clap a lot more than we're comfortable with. But then you hear the gospel preached and you think, I know that gospel. That's the same gospel that I hear every week. It's the same gospel that's preached all around the world. The unity of the gospel between churches, between different kinds of churches, is demonstrated through acts of love. Verse 10, Paul says that they asked him just to remember the poor. In the context, we should note that he's, he's talking about the poor in Judea, in Jerusalem. And there's this beautiful reality that if you read lots of, other, of Paul's other letters, he talks at various points in the letters about an offering or a collection that he's taking up for the poor and the suffering in Jerusalem. He was, as he said, more than willing, more than happy to do this. Gospel unity is demonstrated through acts of love. Have you, as we close, received the gospel like Paul? Has it, has it changed you? Is it changing you? As you hear it laid out and the, the radical freedom of the gospel, does it, if you're honest with yourself, does it repel you? Does it offend you or does it attract you? Are you motivated in your religious activities by duty or delight? Have you received the gospel and are you keen to defend it? Are you aware of what you need to defend it against? Yes, in the church, but also in your own heart, in your own life. And are you preaching it? I don't mean getting up here and doing what I do. Every Christian is meant to preach the gospel. Every, every Christian is meant to tell other people the good news of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what preaching is. Are you doing that? Are you, are you prepared to do that? Are you prepared to do it in ways that, that people need to hear it? The only way that you can really know how people need to hear the gospel is if you get to know them. People are spying on you. People are looking into your life. If they know that you're a Christian, they're looking into your life and they're seeing something. Are they, are they seeing the freedom that the gospel brings? If so, are you, are you prepared to talk to them about that, to give them an answer for that hope? That's among the main reasons why we planted this church a little over a year ago. We exist to glorify God by making disciples through the preaching, the proclamation of the good news of Jesus. And that's, a, that's an every member, every person job, not just a Sunday morning job.